Can't though have a conference on the Reformation without having a good Lutheran. So our next speaker, Corey Moss, is actually an ordained Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor, but then he is also an associate professor of history at Hillsdale College. He obviously lives in Hillsdale with his wife and five children. He did his MA at Concordia University in Illinois, and then did also a Master's of Divinity at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, but then he also did an STM there as well. But as if that wasn't enough school, he went off to Oxford and did another MST with distinction and then stayed around and did his doctorate there as well. So, a very educated man. And his list of academic publications are long and spanned subjects as diverse as the Journal of Markets and Morality, Reformation and Renaissance Review, and Logia. And in addition, he has contributed essays to several books, including A Lutheran View of Life and Learning, Paradox and Paradigm, in Liberal Learning and Great Christian Traditions, and Authority and Method in the Eucharistic Debate of the, Eng of the Early English Reformation. And actually, it's an interesting side note, if any of you ever listened to Hugh Hewitt um, in his Hillsdale Dialogues, there's actually two great podcasts, two weeks in a row, of Matthew and Corey um, talking about, what I believe it was Erasmus, and then the Renaissance right before. So I highly recommend you go and look those up too. And he's published two works of his own, The Natural Knowledge of God and Christian Confession and Christian Witness, and Making the Case for Christianity, Responding to Modern Objections. So I'm going to turn the floor over to Dr. Corey Moss, who's going to be doing a slight turn from last night and be talking about religious liberty as a possible ecumenical common ground. Dr. Moss. Thank you for, for having me. This has been a delightful event so far, and I'm looking forward to the rest of today. Uh, my topic, as announced, does take a slight turn from last night to the question of religious liberty as ecumenical common ground. And I do want to emphasize right out of the gate that this is indeed a question, and in the spirit of frank but charitable ecumenical dialogue, I will offer some tentative answers in the course of my remarks. But I want to begin, at least briefly, with some justification for raising the question at all. Because there are at least respects in which the subject of religious liberty does not suggest itself as an obvious concern of ecumenism per se. But of the two topics, ecumenism and religious liberty, we might say that they are very much intertwined, not least in what has, for the past couple of decades, been called the ecumenism of the trenches. In an aggressively secular culture, increasingly hostile to the free exercise of faith, those of differing confessions find themselves necessarily cooperating in defending uh, their freedom to exercise their faith. While both necessary and beneficial, this ecumenism of the trenches for the sake of religious liberty does suffer from certain shortcomings. Particularly, it is by its nature ad hoc, pragmatic, and as some people like to say, under-theorized. But by way of contrast, the bishops gathered at the Second Vatican Council famously attempted to articulate principled rationales 
grounded in the church's theological tradition for both ecumenism and religious liberty. Not only did the same council address both issues, they were originally intended to be treated together in a single document. So clearly the council fathers recognized that in some respects, ecumenism and religious liberty are of a piece. So there's some warrant for treating religious liberty itself as a kind of ecumenical issue. But does it, or might it, constitute ecumenical common ground? Despite our many and various disagreements, do we, or can we, agree on the fundamental question of religious liberty? And if so, how might the manner by which we reach that agreement inform other ecumenical endeavors? Those are the questions I'd like to address, but I have to admit up front that it's not entirely clear how best to do that. Given the disparities within Protestantism itself, it's unlikely that one can speak of a single Protestant doctrine of religious liberty. Moreover, it's not even clear that any of those individual Protestant traditions have a formal articulation of religious liberty in the vein of, say, Vatican II's Dignitatis Humanae. One might formulate a coherent Two Kingdoms doctrine from the writings of Martin Luther, for example, but the writings of Luther, influential though they may be, are not in themselves binding for Lutherans in the way that magisterial documents are for Catholics. So what I'd like to do with some trepidation is simply to focus on those magisterial Catholic documents, their teachings and their implications, and then to offer one Protestant's perspective on their possible significance for ecumenical dialogue. And probably the most obvious place to begin is with what is arguably the most thorough and certainly the most intentional expression of the Catholic teaching on religious liberty that found in Dignitatis Humanae itself. That declaration proclaims, the human person has a right to religious freedom. This freedom means that all men are to be immune from coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups and of any human power, in such wise that in matters religious, no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs, nor is anyone to be restrained from acting in accordance with his own beliefs, whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others within due limits. Grounding this right, it further explains, is its foundation in the very dignity of the human person. And therefore, finally, this right is inviolable. Not without warrant, Protestants applauded the announcement of this declaration in 1965. And yet, even within the orbit of Rome, not everyone applauded. Indeed, some of the Council Fathers themselves withheld that applause. The proceedings of the Council make evident the great deal of controversy provoked by the discussion of religious liberty. What would eventually become Dignitatis Humanae went through nine separate drafts and hundreds of interventions, with a vote on the text being postponed until the very last day of the Council. The reasons for controversy were varied, but one of the greatest was, quite simply, 
the belief of many that the document forwarded a doctrine contrary to the Church's dogmatic tradition. This being the case, Pope Paul VI himself insisted upon including the statement that the document leaves untouched traditional Catholic doctrine on the moral duty of men and societies toward the true religion and toward the one Church of Christ. And that reassurance satisfied enough participants to proceed with a vote and the document's ultimate acceptance. Left unstated, however, was the manner by which that reassuring assertion was actually justified. That is, the document itself neglects to explain precisely how one might harmonize the perception that Dignitatis Humanae departed from long-standing doctrine with the document's own emphatic claim that it had done no such thing. Indeed, Bishop de Smit, the document's relator, acknowledged this lacuna and admitted just before the final vote, this matter will have to be fully clarified in future theological and historical studies. Unsurprisingly, then, the half-century since Vatican II has witnessed a plethora of attempted clarifications, many of them entirely incompatible with the others. I will in a moment attempt to categorize and summarize those competing explanations, but I do want to be upfront about what I will not attempt to do. I will not attempt to mediate between them or to cast my own vote for that which I think the most plausible. If there's any one thing we might all agree upon in this particular ecumenical forum, it's that the definition of Catholic doctrine is well above my pay grade and well beyond my remit. But to understand why Dignitatis Humanae has spawned its own industry of interpretation, we first have to make explicit the content of what that document calls the traditional Catholic doctrine. Now, many attempts to do so focus especially on the pronouncements of the 19th century popes, and so we have to begin there. Off-cited examples, typically taken to be representative of the pre-conciliar tradition, include the following. In Mirari Vos, Gregory XVI calls absurd and erroneous the proposition which claims that liberty of conscience must be maintained for everyone. He speaks dismissively of those who desire to separate the church from the state and explains that princes have in fact received their authority, especially for the defense of the church. In Quanta Cura, Pius IX refers to the belief that it is the best condition of civil society in which no duty is recognized as attached to the civil power of restraining by enacted penalties offenders against the Catholic religion, except so far as the public peace may require. He says this idea is against the doctrine of Scripture, of the Church, and of the Holy Fathers, and that it fosters the insanity of thinking that liberty of conscience and worship is each man's personal right. Because this is the case, his syllabus of errors condemns the idea that every man is free to embrace and profess that religion which, guided by the light of reason, he shall consider true, as well as the notion that it is no longer expedient that the Catholic religion should be held as the only religion of the state, to the exclusion of all other forms of worship. Thus, even more specifically than Mirari Vos had, he condemns the proposition that the church ought to be separated from the state. 
And significantly for later questions, he also condemns the proposition that the church herself has not the power of using force, nor has she any temporal power. Finally, in, in Immortality Dei, Leo XIII explained that whatever is opposed to virtue and truth may not rightly be brought temptingly before the eye of man, much less sanctioned by the favor and protection of the law. Therefore, he wrote, the state is acting against the laws and dictates of nature whenever it permits the license of opinion and of action to lead minds astray from truth. More specifically then, it is not lawful for the state to hold in equal favor different kinds of religion. And similarly, in his encyclical on the nature of human liberty, he asserts that justice forbids the state to treat the various religions alike and to bestow upon them promiscuously equal rights and privileges. Since then, the profession of one religion is necessary in the state, that religion must be professed which alone is true. These most frequently cited statements are, in some ways, illuminative of the traditional Catholic doctrine. But even they don't tell quite the whole story, because they are, in many respects, simply reiterating teachings that long predate them. Already in the early 14th century, in Unum Sanctum, Boniface VIII asserted that both the spiritual and the temporal swords are in the church's possession, one administered by the church, the other for the church. Certainly, Boniface writes, the one who denies that the temporal sword is in the power of Peter has not listened well to the word of the Lord. In the previous century, therefore, the Fourth Lateran Council could mandate that princes, on pain of excommunication and deposition, expel from their territories all heretics pointed out by the church. And in the same century, Innocent IV taught that though infidels may not be constrained to the faith, the Pope may order them to admit missionaries within their territories. And if they do not obey, they must be forced by the secular arm, and a war be undertaken against them at the request of the Pope. Examples could be multiplied, but Innocent's qualification that infidels may not be constrained acknowledges an important and long-standing distinction that will bear on where we go later. Already in the seventh century, the Fourth Synod of Toledo had likewise acknowledged that the unbaptized may not and must not be coerced in religious matters. But it also exclaimed that the church does have a right to coercively compel the baptized. The coercive power of the church over the baptized, even those who have renounced their baptism, would be confirmed by the Council of Trent, and again in the 18th century by Pius VI, who wrote, we must distinguish between those who have always been outside the church, namely infidels and Jews, and those who have subjected themselves to her through baptism. The former ought not to be compelled to profess the Catholic faith. The latter, however, are to be coerced. It's in the light of such teaching, spanning more than a millennium, that observers such as the Cistercian theologian Edmund Waldstein 
can concisely articulate the source of the confusion and the controversy within Catholicism since 1965. He writes, while the post-conciliar church presents herself as the passionate defender of religious liberty, the pre-conciliar church seems to be the implacable enemy of such liberty. But the operative phrases in that quotation are presents herself and seemed to be. And so the central question is whether one or both of those phrases can be replaced with a simple is or was. That is to say, can one simply say, in light of Vatican II, that the post-conciliar church is the passionate defender of religious liberty? Or can one simply say that the pre-conciliar church was the implacable enemy of such liberty? And if the answer to either or both is yes, what implications follow, most immediately for religious liberty itself, but also, more remotely, for ecumenical endeavors? Without too grossly oversimplifying, we can, I think, identify four distinct theses offered in answer to those questions over the past half century. Given time constraints, I'm afraid I can't uh, you know, offer the full panoply of, of illustrative and explanatory quotations, but I can only briefly summarize these theses with occasional nods to some of the names associated with them. But the first two theses can be explained quite concisely, even though they are likely to remain the least viable explanations. What they share in common is that they answer yes to both of our framing questions. That is, yes, the post-conciliar church is the passionate defender of religious liberty. And yes, the pre-conciliar church was the implacable enemy of such liberty. This being the case, both of these theses also share in common what has been called a hermeneutic of rupture. Both argue that the post-conciliar church following Dignitatis Humanae embraces a doctrine of religious liberty contrary to the doctrine of the pre-conciliar church. More bluntly, both understand the declaration to be a repudiation of the church's pre-conciliar teaching. Where the two positions differ, of course, is in their evaluation of this presumed repudiation. Now, any descriptive labels we might attach to these positions are inevitably going to be problematic, but for the sake of brevity, some labels are going to be unavoidable. At least tentatively, then, we might call one of these positions the progressive position and the other the traditionalist. While agreeing that Dignitatis Humanae signals a rupture with the dogmatic tradition, the traditionalist condemns this, the progressive celebrates it. Representative of that traditionalist position are historians such as Michael Davies, the late Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, and the Society of St. Pius X, which he founded. Representative of that progressive position are those otherwise dissenting Catholics described by Ryan Anderson as politically liberal, doctrinally heterodox, spirit of Vatican II Catholics. 
Believing that Vatican II broke with the dogmatic tradition on religious liberty, those progressives hold out hope that the church might also break with its similarly traditional doctrines on contraception, female clergy, or communion for the divorced and civilly remarried. Now again, for what are probably obvious reasons, these first two interpretations are not likely to gain official sanction. I include them, though, not merely for the sake of being comprehensive, but also because it's not actually clear that they can be entirely ruled out. Addressing the issue of Vatican dialogues with the Society of St. Pius X, for example, Vatican representative Archbishop Guido Pazzo recently claimed that it might be possible for the Society to enjoy full reunion with the Church even without renouncing its interpretation of Dignitatis Humanae. Similarly, Pope Francis' continued refusal to respond to the dubia concerning communion for the divorced and remarried, and his failure to correct those bishops who are allowing precisely that practice, at least allows the impression that progressive interpretations of magisterial documents remain within the bounds of acceptable orthodoxy. Nevertheless, the other two theses do have, or are gaining, much greater traction. In fact, in a much commented upon essay from three years back, Notre Dame professor Patrick Deneen proffered that the future of Catholicism lies with one of these two positions. One is represented by those Deneen calls neoconservative Catholics, the other by those he calls radical Catholics. Again, not unproblematic labels, but for convenience, I'll simply borrow his. These two camps, like the first two mentioned, also share commonalities. Most prominently, they affirm a hermeneutic of continuity rather than of rupture. And so they assume that the church's pre- and post-conciliar teachings can be and must be harmonized. They also share in common the attempt to harmonize these teachings by answering yes to only one of our two framing questions rather than to both. Where they differ most substantially is only on which question is answered in the affirmative. What has been the most popular position says yes the post-conciliar church is the passionate defender of religious liberty. And further, in light of Dignitatis Humanae, she must be. To avoid the conclusion that this teaching represents a rupture with the past, proponents of this thesis then answer no to the question of whether the pre-conciliar church just was the implacable enemy of such liberty. But the justification for answering in this manner differs widely among these so-called neoconservative Catholics. Some, such as John Courtney Murray, allow that the preconciliar tradition was dogmatic in nature and grant that the letter of that tradition is clear and unambiguous. But they contend that the profound intention of those conciliar documents and papal documents takes precedence over their actual words, and that this profound intention has now been made obvious in Dignitatis Humanae itself. Another interpretation, 
offered by Avery Dulles, Robert George, and others, also grants that the preconciliar documents were indeed dogmatic in nature. It denies, however, that their actual words were ever clear and unambiguous. Rather, precisely because they were historically conditioned and so ambiguous, certain misinterpretations of that tradition had to be corrected by Dignitatis Humanae, which represents a true development of doctrine. A third interpretation, that of Martin Ronheimer, John Zemirak, and others, simply denies that the preconciliar tradition was ever dogmatic in nature. And so, despite the potential clarity of that tradition, it merely represented temporary and mutable policy preferences, which policies have now been made impermissible by Vatican II. Implicit in each of these neoconservative interpretations is the belief that however it might have been obscured by past language or past policy, religious liberty as a doctrine just is the perennial teaching of the church. In this, they share an assumption that clearly distinguishes both their approach and their conclusion from proponents of the fourth and final thesis. That assumption is that the doctrine of Dignitatis Humanae is itself clear and unambiguous. As such, its proper interpretation is relatively simple and straightforward. The meaning of the pre-conciliar pronouncements, by contrast, is not at all clear or unambiguous. If any of them are to be understood as doctrinal in nature, their doctrine per se cannot be wrong. Nonetheless, certain interpretations of that doctrine can be and are. Thus, it's the interpretation of the preconciliar doctrine that must be corrected and brought into harmony with Dignitatis Humanae. The fourth and final thesis, that of Deneen's so-called radicals, begins from precisely the opposite assumption. Namely, not only is the preconciliar tradition dogmatic by its very nature, but the many articulations of that doctrine through the centuries are clear, unambiguous, mutually reinforcing, and so virtually self-interpreting. It's Dignitatis Humanae, by contrast, that is ambiguous. And so if it is to be understood as doctrinally authoritative, then certain of its interpretations will have to be corrected so as to harmonize with the preconciliar tradition. To return to those framing statements then, the radicals say, yes, the preconciliar church was the implacable enemy of religious liberty. And because this is the case, the post-conciliar church is not and cannot be the passionate defender of such liberty. She might passionately defend the liberty of the church, that is, the Catholic church, for that is certainly part of the tradition. She might even passionately defend the occasional toleration of non-Catholic expressions on prudential grounds, for that is also clearly part of the tradition. But she cannot passionately defend religious liberty per se. Not only is that not a part of the dogmatic tradition, it is, they believe, expressly condemned by that tradition. But 
As with the conclusion advanced by the neoconservatives, the actual means by which the radical conclusion is reached differ in significant respects. The easiest is simply to deny that Vatican II's Declaration on Religious Liberty carries the weight of actual doctrine. That allows one to conclude that because the pre-conciliar tradition is dogmatic and Dignitatis Humanae is not, there is and can be no doctrinal discontinuity between the two. Indeed, since the Declaration does not define doctrine, it would be incorrect even to speak of doctrinal development. The clear preconciliar doctrine remains, only the prudential and practical application of that doctrine has, for the time being, changed. As with the neoconservative thesis, however, this doctrine policy distinction need not be an essential component of this radical position. Even if Dignitatis Humanae were deemed dogmatic, the radical conclusion is not precluded because once again, its presupposition is that the true teaching of that declaration is not blindingly obvious. The question then becomes, what exactly is its true teaching? Keeping in mind that to be true teaching means to be teaching in harmony with the clear and dogmatically binding pre-conciliar tradition. Now there are two ways in which this question has been answered. The first places the interpretive burden on those few but important qualifying clauses found in Dignitatis Humanae. So, for example, that declaration endorses the free exercise of religion within due limits. Similarly, it says that free exercise will be normative provided the just demands of public order are observed. Interpreters such as Thomas Stork, John Lamont, and Thomas Crean simply argue that due limits and the just demands of public order would themselves require, when possible, the proscription of non-Catholic and so objectively erroneous expressions of belief. The second interpretation is that proposed in various works by Thomas Pink and defended, for example, by Edmund Waldstein. It denies that the state, as state, has any legitimate authority respecting religious matters, and argues that the church alone legitimately possesses this authority. Not only authority, though, but also power, including coercive power, which may at times be delegated to the state for use in behalf of the church. When this ecclesiastical power is delegated to and used by the state, the state then acts in perfect accord with its nature as the secular arm of the church. And further, all things being equal, the church herself has an obligation to impose this duty on the state. That is, the only reason not to prohibit non-Catholic worship or publishing or proselytizing is if doing so would undermine some greater good, such as civil peace. One important qualification, though, the authority possessed by the church herself does extend only over those within her jurisdiction, that is, the baptized. The unbaptized, Jews or Muslims, for example, are beyond the church's authority. But heretics and apostates, which would include Protestants, are not. If they've been baptized, even in ecclesial bodies not in communion with Rome, 
this interpretation says, they are subject to the church's authority, and so can and ought be compelled in religious matters. What we have then are four broad theses, each mutually contradictory. Moreover, at least two of these theses are themselves justified by mutually contradictory explanations. Once again, I don't intend to arbitrate these various positions. I don't know what the correct, authoritative, or binding interpretation of Dignitatis Humanae is. Nor do I know what the correct, authoritative, or binding interpretation of the preconciliar tradition is. And therefore, I can't possibly know what the true relationship between the two is. But here's the important point. The very existence of multiple and competing interpretations strongly suggests that nobody does. Any of the above may be plausible interpretations. What seems quite clear, though, is that all of them are and remain private interpretations. We can debate which are better or worse, which have greater or lesser warrant, but unless and until the magisterium speaks and speaks definitively, it would seem premature for us to speak of the Catholic doctrine of religious liberty. Now, on the one hand, this might be a source of some embarrassment within Catholicism. The Church had, for more than a thousand years, a body of papal and conciliar pronouncements that, for all intents and purposes, looked like they comprised a definitive doctrine. And so the Church, throughout those years, acted accordingly. Similarly, for the last 50 years, the Church has had in Dignitatis Humanae what also looks like a clearly defined, though apparently very different, doctrine. And through that half century, it has also acted accordingly. Potential embarrassment aside, though, if it is the case that there is no single definitive Catholic doctrine of religious liberty, that would, of course, have enormous ecumenical significance. And so we can now turn to that promised question about the ecumenical implications of religious liberty. Where doctrine remains undefined, there exist possibilities for dialogue that would not exist otherwise. It's the Catholic understanding, of course, that solemnly defined dogmas remain irreformable. They might, of course, develop in some sense, but they cannot substantially change. If a doctrine of religious liberty does remain undefined then, Catholic-Protestant dialogue might proceed in ways very different than could be expected if the topic were, say, papal infallibility or the assumption of Mary. And given that ecumenism of the trenches in which we are all engaged, especially with respect to religious liberty, formal doctrinal dialogues leading to ecumenical common ground on this subject might be very fruitful indeed. Having said that, however, the four broad positions I've outlined do seem to be exhaustive of the possibilities for a Catholic doctrine of religious liberty. So if successful dialogue on this doctrine were to be paradigmatic for ecumenical endeavors on other topics, it's worth asking how and why that might be the case. So it's worth revisiting each of those four positions with those questions in mind. In view of those distinct theses previously noted, it probably goes without saying that any Protestant would prefer 
a formal definition of one of those two you know, liberal views. That is, those that would preclude any future proscription of Protestant free exercise. Between those two positions, the one most pregnant with ecumenical possibility would, of course, be the progressive thesis. Were Rome to embrace that position, she would, in effect, say that her doctrine and practice had been in error for more than a thousand years, and that she is capable of repudiating a millennium of clear and consistent papal and conciliar teaching. If that were the case, ecumenical possibilities become virtually infinite. At the other extreme, probably the least fruitful position from both a Protestant and a Catholic perspective is that traditionalist thesis. The implication of this position is that the Catholic Church of the last 50 years has not only been in error, but arguably also in schism, with the true church being represented by dissenting minority entities such as the Society of St. Pius X. It seems quite unlikely that the Vatican would be willing or able to entertain that possibility seriously. From a Protestant perspective, this thesis might hold some small attraction simply because it, too, would entail an admission that even ecumenical councils ratified by popes can err in matters of doctrine and morals. But gaining that admission would be a Pyrrhic victory since it seems quite clear that the SSPX has zero interest in ecumenical conversation with Protestants. Indeed, if their thesis were correct, Protestantism would of necessity be suppressed as soon as prudential considerations allowed. But the same would also be the case with that radical thesis in its various guises. In fact, in view of Protestant thinking about ecumenical dialogue with Rome, this thesis would be even more problematic. It too maintains the existence of a right and duty to suppress non-Catholic exercise when possible. And so it fails to address the complaint voiced by Cardinal Heenan in the course of Vatican II itself. When Catholics are in the minority, Heenan said, we are all for freedom. But when Catholics are in the majority, we only talk about the rights of truth. Protestants accuse us of suppressing the religious freedom of non-Catholics when we are strong enough to do it. If the radical thesis were confirmed, this Protestant accusation could not simply be dismissed as the delusion of prejudiced paranoiacs. It would have to be embraced as dogmatic fact. Thus, as William Marshner openly admitted, with the best will in the world, non-Catholics can hardly be expected to trust us with the reins of power if our only answer to their anxiety about a Catholic state is either a harsh assertion of the sole right of truth or else a pragmatic, always revocable pledge of tolerance. But even more problematic, especially for ecumenical ventures, Proponents of this radical thesis allow that the careful language of Dignitatis Humanae intentionally, perhaps even deceptively, obscures this fact. Thomas Pink, for example, notes that the world expected a liberal declaration, and so it was very carefully written to read in as liberal terms as possible, consistent with respect for, but without actual statement of, earlier and highly illiberal Catholic teaching. 
Its silence on this highly illiberal but still dogmatic teaching, Pink writes, is a, de is a design feature. To put it bluntly, from a Protestant perspective, if the bishops were willing to obfuscate in such a way even when speaking with one another, a Protestant could have no confidence that they would be forthright in speaking ecumenically with separated brethren. So that leaves us with the neoconservative thesis. As with the progressive thesis, Protestants would applaud, as they thought they were doing already in 1965, official confirmation that neither the state nor the Catholic Church possesses legitimate authority to coercively prescribe or proscribe the exercise of their faith. With respect to ecumenical implications, though, they would surely want and deserve some clearer explanation of how exactly the church understands its definition of religious liberty to stand in continuity with its millennium-long denial of the same. As Catholic philosopher Ed Fazer has rightly stated, in the context of Pope Francis's recent remarks concerning an ostensible development in the church's doctrine concerning the death penalty, simply calling something a development rather than a contradiction doesn't make it so. And the same would hold true with respect to Dignitatis Humanae, which also explicitly claims to be a development of earlier papal teaching. Intriguingly, though, it claims more specifically only to be a development of the teaching of recent popes. Equally intriguing, when and where the Declaration makes reference to the preconciliar teaching, it does so in what appears a strangely selective manner. It makes reference to those recent popes, going back to Leo XIII, as well as to the apostles and early church fathers, while maintaining a studied silence on the long centuries separating them. If it was the Council's intention to suggest that the pure doctrine was clearly taught in the Church's earliest years, entirely obscured for a millennium and then subsequently brought to light again in its true form, Protestants would certainly welcome that confirmation of their own suspicions about the general course of the Church's history. But it's unclear how persuasive a case could be made for a thousand years of consistent teaching being mere policy rather than actual doctrine. And even if it were, how a spirit-led magisterium could for so long insist on policy directly contrary to its doctrine. Alternatively, if the claim is that the teaching of Christendom was dogmatic in nature, but because historically conditioned, ambiguous in its expression, the obvious question raised even by Catholics holding a different interpretation is, what expression of doctrine is not historically conditioned? Dignitatis Humanae acknowledges that both its expressions and its conclusions are so conditioned, and it does so in an explicit way that those preconciliar documents do not. Would this therefore imply that the Declaration itself might be radically reinterpreted at some point in the future? If not, what might prevent that? And those same questions would apply to any claims that preconciliar expression of doctrine was indeed clear, but that its profound intention only became clear in the 20th century. Further and finally, Protestants would want to know how precisely 
either of those two claims might be squared with the first Vatican Council's teaching that the traditional meaning of sacred dogmas is ever to be maintained and must never be abandoned under the pretext or in the name of a more profound understanding. Rather, said that council, doctrine is to be embraced in the same sense and the same understanding as obtained through the ages and centuries. Well, because a good many Catholics also want answers to these same questions, Michael Hannon remains undoubtedly correct in his judgment that this in-house Catholic dispute isn't going anywhere anytime soon. On the contrary, he says, it's just getting started. Phil Lawler was also correct when he wrote just a few months ago that one thing is certain, we will not solve the problem by pretending it does not exist. So where does this leave the Protestant? And where does it leave all of us with respect to the question of my title, religious liberty as ecumenical common ground? Without wanting to sound too flippant, I think the answer to that question can only be yes, no, and maybe. <laughs> yes, unquestionably, with respect to that so-called ecumenism of the trenches. Now and for the foreseeable future, prudence simply dictates that we do stand on common ground and cooperate with respect to the defense of religious liberty in the civil realm. But does there exist a common ground beyond pragmatic necessity at the level of mutually agreed upon doctrine? Here, I think the answer must be no, if only for the simple reason that it remains unclear whether Protestants or Catholics have an actual doctrine of religious liberty. If and when such doctrines are clearly and authoritatively defined, and depending on their precise content, maybe, indeed, hopefully, we will then find ourselves standing together on common ground. And if that common ground has been reached by means of frank but charitable ecumenical conversation, perhaps the same means can and will over time lead even to a mutually edifying expansion of that common ground. Thank you.